Hello, and welcome to Out of My Mind in Costa Rica, where we talk about all things related to post-traumatic stress and complex post-traumatic stress. This means the content of this podcast can be graphic, and if you suffer from PTSD or complex PTSD, keep in mind you could become triggered. If that happens, stop the podcast immediately and take care of yourself. You can always come back and listen later. I'm the guinea pig here, and it is my life I examine on Out of My Mind in Costa Rica. It is my hope that my trials and tribulations, successes and failures, will somehow compel you to examine your life and discover your gifts. Socrates exclaimed, a life unexamined is a life not worth living. This is a call to action for all of us. As a clinical social worker, this was my trade, my vocation. From personal experience, I can tell you, without a doubt, that what you don't know can hurt you. My entire life, I have been compelled to support and encourage people to grow, to boldly look within and courageously examine their lives. Shine your light onto those dark spaces and the solutions you seek will reveal themselves. Now sit down, relax, and listen. Out of my mind, in Costa Rica. Hello, and welcome to Out of My Mind in Costa Rica, living with complex post-traumatic stress. I'm your host, Ray Erickson. This week, I need to talk with you about getting stuck in the mud. I need to talk about this because this is where I'm at. I'm stuck in the mud, axle deep, and I'm not going anywhere fast. Hell. I'd be happy with a little nudge in one direction or another. Instead, I'd find myself playing the same old tapes over and over again in my head. Something needs to change. And it looks like me who needs to do the changing. The world sure as hell isn't going to change unless I change. Ain't that the truth? Before I get into the mud, I want to thank my sponsor, Out of My Mind Art at www outofmymindart.com. It's the Etsy shop where you can get your hands on some real magic. That's what I need today. I need some magic. I need some help to pull me out of this stinking sinkhole I've been lost in for far too long. Seriously, I've been clinically depressed for the better part of the past five to six months, and I'm getting darn sick of it. It's no fun, and it feels like if I don't do something soon, I could slip quietly into the void, and no one would notice. That's a little scary for me, and it should be for you, too, if you find yourself at the bottom of a deep hole. you got to just start working your way out of that hole, and the only way out is up. I'm not too concerned, because I've been in this hole before, and I've been stuck in the mud frequently. The good news is, I have a 100% success rate in digging myself out of my self-made purgatory, where I sit waiting in my silent pain for the world to be kinder. It just doesn't seem to be working this time. I am stuck deep, man. My friend, the friend who I highlighted a couple of weeks ago, recommended a book by Pema Chodron, entitled When Things Fall Apart. It's a Buddhist perspective on coming to terms with and resolving life's most 
painful moments. Its approach is familiar, but the practices she describes are revolutionary. Not to mention, they're really hard to get going, too. It's a real challenge. It's not the intent of this podcast to be a book review, so if you want to know more about the book in more detail and about the author, I provided a link above and on the episode description page. What have I gained thus far from my reading? Well, so far, the biggest lesson has been to learn new ways to approach meditation, ways that address the suffering directly, head-to-head, kara-akara. It turns out I've been doing it all wrong in the first place. I'm sure changing the way I meditate will have an impact. Chodron encourages her students to breathe in the pain, the grief, the sorrow. But not just your pain, grief, and sorrow. No, she encourages you to breathe in all of the pain, grief, and sorrow of everyone who at this moment are suffering. I've been breathing in good and breathing out bad for most of my meditating years. I'm excited to see how this is going to play out for me. I need to do something. I just can't sit here treading water forever. I must move myself forward in my life, and at 70 years of age, I am feeling a sense of urgency. Chodron goes on to say that when you exhale, you release all of the healing energy in the universe to each and every one of those suffering individuals. In this way, your pain can be put into context with the pain of others. Then, empathy and compassion can take the place of fear and loathing. Sounds like a great payoff if you ask me. So I'm going to give these methods a spin around the block and see how it goes. Like I said, I need to do something. The depression is really entrenched and it's beginning to piss me off. I'm getting sick and tired of being sick and tired. You get my drift. Everyone gets stuck in the mud occasionally, but this has been going on for months I know I have clinical depression, and this adds to my struggle to get out of the mud, but I have been depressed before, and I've always been able to get to the other side of it. This time it seems particularly strong, and I feel like I'm more deeply depressed than I ever have been before. I know this sounds dismal, and to a large degree it is dismal, but fortunately, I have a place I can go. I can come here. I can come to out of my mind in Costa Rica and talk with you about being stuck in the mud. I know you understand, and you have your own experiences of stuckness. You are my brothers and my sisters when it comes to complex post-traumatic stress. We did not ask to have this happen, but it did. And for many of us, we were clueless for many years, and in my case, decades before I figured things out. Even though I've been a professional psychotherapist for over 20 years, and I have worked in the trenches, you might say, with perpetrators and survivors of sexual trauma, I got to tell you, denial is not just a river in Egypt. It's a real-time, real-life experience. When I was in a state of clinical denial, I was engaged in an alternative reality a reality that is void of any trauma experiences. And with that comes the cognitive distortions that twisted my thinking into believing it's not me, it's the rest of the world with the problem. 
the world does have its problems, and everyone is suffering to one extent or another. But in my case, denial kept me safe. It kept me safe from the impact of the childhood trauma that I now know occurred, not just once or twice, but repeatedly for years. This may have been going on for you as well. And the question that pops into my mind quite often is, how could a professional psychotherapist not recognize within themselves the same tragic story of the clients he works with? And who committed these heinous crimes against children? When you are in denial, true reality does not exist. You could be standing in the middle of a burning house and not know it's on fire. Now, when I look at the denial I was in, I express gratitude for it. Denial was very successful sheltering me from the realities of my family until at a time I could tolerate the truth. The denial continues as I wrestle with the implications of that complex post-traumatic stress has had on my life, my work, and my relationships. Yeah, denial saved me, but it also kept me locked up in a universe that was not real. It was all make-believe and pretending to be well. Well, I wasn't well. I was, and I still am, to a large degree, extremely damaged as a result of the abuses and neglect I experienced as a child. Am I angry about that? You're damn right I'm angry. I'm pissed off as hell. And right now I'm struggling with putting all of this into perspective. I am seeing it being played out in my current relationship failure. Fuck you, complex post-traumatic stress. I'm angry. I didn't realize this 30 years ago when I was getting all the therapy. But I also need to give myself a break because for the majority of this time, I was securely wrapped up in my security blanket of denial. It does no good to be angry with my family. Anyway, they are nearly all dead and gone. The only other surviving being my younger brother, Tom, whom I've not had any contact with for nearly 35 years. My relationship, Tom, has always been mixed. And even though we shared a room for the majority of our childhoods, we never became close. We tolerated each other, and we didn't get into each other's way. We kept to ourselves, even though we slept in the same room together for 18 years. We had our roles to play, and these roles were mutually exclusive. Tom's role as a lost child required him to be nearly invisible. Whatever you do, don't make waves, waves of joy or waves of despair. Tom was neutral in everything. He quietly graduated high school and later went to work at the same auto factory where our father was the superintendent of the paint department. This was Fisher Body, and the factory employed thousands from the Flint metropolitan area. He did well there, tolerating the boredom and the monotony of factory work. He worked pretty much his entire life in this environment. He could keep his head low and make a good living. He was relatively happy, I think. Who knows? After the sexual abuse of my brother was revealed, my family took a hard line and killed me off, metaphorically. I ceased to exist in their minds, and there was nothing I could do to alter this fate. Fortunately for me, it worked out to my advantage. Knowledge of my family history of incest started to make more and more sense to me. At the time this was going on, 
I was also employed by an agency called the Child and Family Institute, a private nonprofit organization. I was charged with providing a variety of therapies for adolescent sex offenders and their families. I also co-facilitated two groups of adult sex offenders every week. This was a clinically rich time for me, and there was a lot of support within the agency. That is, until the program director moved on. She was the glue that held everyone together, and without her strong support, guidance, and leadership, clinicians began to leave. Eventually, I found a position working with teens and families at a private psychiatric hospital in the area. This, too, was a rich and rewarding opportunity for me. It gave me the experience and the supervision I needed to obtain my professional California licensure. I learned a great deal over these six clinically enriching years. I learned how to function as a clinical social worker. I think in some ways, my work with pedophiles protected me from the pain and the grief that I had yet to fully grieve. My experience in treating incest families helped me to empathize with the struggles that occurred in these families as well as my family. But yet, the denial persisted. Somehow, I was okay. I had miraculously escaped the incestuous nightmare that my family had been. But was I okay? No, I was not okay. I was pretty fucked up. And even though I had hundreds of hours of psychotherapy, not once was it suggested that I may have PTSD. I didn't become conscious of having PTSD until I was in my mid-60s. A couple of years later, I realized I had complex post-traumatic stress. Why didn't I recognize this before? I don't know. You know, perhaps we're too close to our problems. Perhaps I was not able to see this sad fact until I began to experience emotional triggers for the third time. And once again, directed at the very person I loved the most, my lover, my partner, my de facto family. Over the previous 30 years, I've been involved with three long-term relationships. One for 15 years, another for four years, and this last one for 13 years. I really like being in relationship, and I clearly function better in a safe and loving relationship. But each of these relationships began to break down under the pressure that was being created by the complex post-traumatic stress I had been experiencing for most of my life. It's a real mindfuck when you first realize that the life you thought you had been living was not the life you lived. Things got turned upside down and right side out. The latest casualty being my current marriage. Just like the previous two relationships, my emotional triggers were the primary problem for my partner's need to leave. And I can't blame them. For me, it was my abandonment wound from childhood. Each woman, ironically, seemed to lack the empathy that I needed. I never realized this the entire time I was with the other two loves of my life. I would get triggered but we had no idea what was going on, and it was not pretty. When I am triggered, I become a rage-filled six-year-old boy. I become a six-year-old boy with a master's degree in social work and 20-plus years' experience as a psychotherapist. This little boy was, probably is, still quite formidable. I have not been triggered in many months, but I don't give myself a lot of credit for this because I have not been tested in relationships. I am clear that my marriage is doomed, and I'm working through the loss. 
But what creates anxiety for me is my next relationship. Should I or shouldn't I? I've said it before and I'll say it again. My preferred way of being is to be in relationship. Now that I am conscious of all the shit that has happened in my life and my adaptation to these experiences, it makes me extremely anxious even to consider putting myself out there. Maybe you can relate to this. It really does make me nervous. And the available pool of appropriate mates is infinitely small. I'm 70 fucking years old for crying out loud. Do I even want to re-engage in an intimate relationship? Well, the short answer to that is a resounding yes. I am much happier and I tend to function better when I'm in relationship. And I do well in relationship until I stop doing well which usually takes seven to ten years for the complex post-traumatic stress to emerge. But it merges as it does, and it does the same thing every time. It tears and rips away at the trust and safety in our partnership until there's nothing left, nothing left but hurt feelings and despair. Do I really want to do this again? Maybe my hopes are that I'll die before that fateful turning of the tide. You know, go out of the top before the ugly starts to creep in. No, any, any future partner needs to be knowledgeable about CPTSD and be empathetic towards the struggles it creates. This time my eyes are wide open. I'm no longer in denial, and I'm clear that anyone I engage with at a romantic level will need to know what has gone on for me, and they, in turn, will need to share with me what has gone on with them. After all, trauma may very well be the strongest common experience for each of us. And if there is any question of whether or not we can process these experiences with each other, then that's a deal-breaker. Both of us, then, will enter into partnership with our eyes fully open, accepting each other because we have possessed the strength and the courage to be open and honest with each other from the beginning. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But living life on my own tends to have more drawbacks than it does benefits. To start with, I tend to be extremely lonely, while at the same time, the anxiety I feel is overwhelming. When you top that off with a nice deep layer of clinical depression, and you have the makings of a big shit sandwich. As troubling as this is, I also see living on my own as a personal challenge to overcome. Yeah, I prefer to be in relationship. That is why I put so much effort into the attempts to heal my current marriage. But you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I'm coming to terms with this sad reality that things are not going to change. As much as I crave for my wife to suddenly become open and honest with her communication, it just is not going to happen. It's not. And I need to move on. This has been made more difficult because of the poor communication we have. It can take days to get a response from a message I sent to her, if I get a response at all. I understand where she's coming from in terms of attachment style. She has an avoidant, dismissive attachment style, and I have an anxious, preoccupied attachment style. Unless each of us modify our styles, the outlook is not good for the future. So it's probably best for me to end this relationship, heal, and move forward in my life. Piece of cake? 
I don't think so. Not if you look at my history. Yes, I eventually recover from these kinds of losses, but it takes me a long time to get unstuck from the mud and get some traction going forward. I mean, years. Once bitten, twice shy. What about thrice bitten? Am I thrust into a state of thrice shy? I hope not. I'm currently extremely shy around new people, and especially women I find attractive. I don't trust myself with women. Not that I would be triggered, but because of the long-term prospects of any relationship surviving any emotional triggers seems like a fantasy. I'm afraid I can't make a promise that I won't have an emotional trigger. What I hope for is a restorative experience with people who validate and not dismiss, support and not resent my weaknesses and vulnerabilities. I hope for a true partnership to be with someone who not only can see me for who I am, but can reveal themselves for whom they are. I call it reciprocal intimacy. A relationship state where my true self is on display while the other person courageously reveals their own true self. We feel safe and simultaneously we are vulnerable. This is the only way for me. That will have to wait, I'm afraid. I can't afford to make a decision like that in the middle of a crisis. No, first things first. Take care of the crisis at hand, heal from this experience, and grow from it. Only then would I be able to allow myself the degree of vulnerability that it will take to create such a safe relationship for myself. No, first I need to work on myself before I subject me to another human being. It just isn't right, even though at times I'm in the depths of the deepest despair I've ever felt. On the other hand, if I am going to suffer, it might as well be in a beautiful setting, in a lovely little casita on a hill. And that's where I'm at right now. I have thought about selling the little casita on the hill overlooking the central valley of Costa Rica. I have talked to my wife about selling the property. Each of us would come out of the deal with some decent cash. But I'm not so sure at the moment. And like I said, decisions like this should not be made in the midst of a clinical depression. It just isn't good policy. I have explored the possibilities of selling and moving back to Estados Unidos. There are areas of central organ that I'm attracted to, but there are some serious financial consequences I would face if I were to return to the States. The cost of living is the biggest challenge. Because we are relatively smart about the design and the construction of this little house, we are not overburdened by a huge mortgage. I can easily afford to live here, maintain the quality of my life, and even save some money for future travel. This would not be the case in Oregon or in most states where I would consider setting up camp. I would immediately become one of the poor, seeking government assistance just to survive. This is one of the reasons we decided to leave the states in the first place. I have a really nice little house. There's a spectacular view, 24-7, 365, that can't be beat, and it is affordable. I just happen to be 3,000 miles away from my home country. That's all. No big deal. Wrong. It is a big deal. Talk with any expat, and they will tell you it's not easy living in a foreign country, a country where only one in five people speak any level of English. 
It's not easy when La Trotica, the traffic cops, take your license plates because you are parked in a yellow zone. There's nothing but yellow zones all over town, and everyone parks there. All that does is create a real heyday for the traffic police who come into town armed with a ticket book and a screwdriver. It is costly to get your plates out of the Costa Rican bureaucracy. It has happened to me twice, damn it. It's a big, big hassle, and it costs a lot of money. Otherwise, it's just another day in Central America. In some ways, it would be infinitely easier to live in the U.S., even with a significant increase in my cost of living. At least most of the people speak English, and the U.S. is a better market for out-of-my-mind art. I would be poor, but possibly in a significantly more comfortable space, headwise. Speaking of out-of-my-mind art, I want to thank the people over there for sponsoring Out of My Mind in Costa Rica. I may be biased, but I think every man and woman and child needs a magic wand. Perhaps more now than ever before. Check it out at www.outofmymindart.com. Please share this link with your friends. We wish all of you a safe and comfortable life. Well, that is about all I have to say today about getting stuck in the mud, and you have done it again. You have wasted another 25 to 30 minutes listening to Out of My Mind in Costa Rica, Living with Complex Post-Traumatic Stress. I'm your host, Ray Erickson, and I am grateful for each and every single one of you. Please, if you're listening to Out of My Mind in Costa Rica on a platform that allows you to rate, review, or comment, then don't be shy. Let your voices be heard. And if there's any topics you want me to address, then please share them with me. The best way is to email me at ray at rayerickson.com. I will get back to you right away. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, be courageous, be strong, and be kind. I'll catch you later.